Dear Heavenly Father, the long road through this Gospel is almost at an end. For many, Father, it has been a two-year journey, and for others, Father, perhaps less, but in our own lives, Father, spiritually, the journey is, is much longer, measured not in time, Father, but in steps of obedience and learning. For some of us, Father, it has been an eye-opening opportunity to hear and learn things that we may never have heard or never have read. And for that, Father, we are so thankful that you have stored in your word such amazing truths and so many nuggets, Father, of, of history from time before and uh, in circumstances and in places far away from our own. But, but yet, Father, made so relevant by the Holy Spirit and his teaching of that word. Thank you, Father, for that opportunity. Perhaps for others, Father, it is uh, more familiar. But even then, Father, the living word and its power to always be relevant in a present way has been made, made known to us again. Seeing the word in new ways, Father, hearing the word again, and yet perhaps for the first time understanding something in it. And all the while, Father, feeling the Holy Spirit convicting us and drawing us in and showing us new ways to live. Father, the power of your word is unsurpassed. And as we come to the conclusion of this study in the next week, I do pray, Father, that uh, that, that process would not only continue for these next two weeks, but would continue long past the time of this study. That the legacy, Father, of our time in Luke would not be our knowledge of Luke, but our lifestyle and our ability, Father, in our life to mirror the words and commands of our Lord. Let our legacy, Father, be that a life, uh, that the life we have is lived out according to the gospel and uh, all that we uh, may think and do and say, Father, is framed by what we've learned. We pray for that blessing. May the words tonight be according to your will, Father, and by your Holy Spirit and in the glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Luke 24, when we were last here, we had actually just come to a conclusion as Jesus' lifeless body hung on the cross. This was actually, as you know, at the end of chapter 23. So we will actually pick up again in the end of 23. That scene, you may remember, had Jesus having died but still on the cross, the crowds having left, the religious leaders having returned to the city, no doubt congratulating one another on the success of their plan to kill Jesus. The women, who we saw last week still at the cross, were staying behind, perhaps watching over Jesus' body as he was hanging there, hoping perhaps for some miracle, hoping for some different end to the story that they just witnessed. And so we're going to go back to that moment tonight and pick up where we left off. But before we do that, I want to take you back into a different gospel, just for a moment, to a place where John, in his gospel, describes the very same scene at the cross, but John inserts a little bit more detail following the death of Jesus, but before what we'll see Luke cover tonight. And that extra detail adds, I think, some interesting pieces that are worth studying. So, if you'll turn with me tonight, just a bit out of the normal flow, we're going to go to John chapter 19. And verse 31, and for just a short moment, I want you to see some of the events that took place following his death on the cross as John records them. Verse 31, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, 
they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. If you were present for my description of the crucifixion last week, then you'll immediately understand the reason behind why the Jewish leaders made their request of Pilate. You'll remember that I said when a man was hanging on a cross, the ability of that man to actually breathe depended on their ability to push themselves up with their legs. The nature of the way the cross hung the body stretched the limbs, stretched the torso in such a way that the diaphragm could not create the vacuum necessary in the, in the lungs, in the, in the cavity of the body, to draw air in, to draw breath in. It was necessary that the prisoner relieve some of that downward pressure, lifting themselves up just long enough to breathe in and then relax again out of the necessity of the, of the pain and the stress of the moment. So this would go on, as I mentioned, for, for hours and perhaps as long as days stretching out the death. And if there was a need to shorten the time that this prisoner spent on the cross, then it was easy as just breaking the legs of the individual. Because if you broke those legs, they would lose the ability to push themselves up and therefore it wouldn't be a matter of time at all before they would asphyxiate on the cross, basically suffocating from the inability to lift themselves up and take in a breath. Normally, Romans wouldn't do this. Normally, Romans left their victims to die slowly. After all, that was the point of that kind of execution method. And they normally didn't bury their victims either, particularly those who would die by a cross. Remember, those who died by a cross were not Roman citizens. You would not be put to death this way if you were a Roman citizen. So these would have already have been people that the Romans held in low regard. That's why they were put on the cross. So they were not worthy of a burial. They would be left to basically rot away on the cross, birds picking at their flesh. I mean, the whole routine. That was the way people were left to die in the Romans' way of doing things. The Jews, on the other hand, didn't find that as acceptable. And so the Jews would often make the appeal that the man be taken off the cross when he died. And that was especially true when you approached a Sabbath. It would have been a great concern for a Jew to see a body hanging on a cross over a Sabbath day. This came out of the Law of Moses. Because in the Law of Moses, in Deuteronomy 21 specifically, verses 22 and 23... No one was to be permitted to hang on a tree overnight. Now, a cross in your mind might not be a tree, but the sense of it in Deuteronomy covered both regular living trees and a, and a cross made of wood. In both cases, we're saying that to be hanging in a lifeless way on a tree over a Sabbath or overnight even was considered an abomination or considered cur accursed. So they did not want Jesus to remain on that place over the coming Sabbath. Remember, we're only hours now away from the Sabbath beginning. Not the Sabbath of a Saturday, but rather a high Sabbath, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you were here when we taught through the Passover meal and what went on in the Last Supper, you'll remember that I mentioned that he dies on a Thursday. Thursday night at sundown starts the Sabbath of the first day of Unleavened Bread. That continues until Friday night. Friday night, you have another Sabbath back to back, the second Sabbath of a normal Friday night to Saturday night period starts. So you have a high Sabbath immediately before a regular Sabbath. So the next two days after Jesus' death are going to be Sabbath days. They can't leave that body hanging there for two days according to Jewish law. So the Jewish leaders essentially say, let's get on with it. Let's put an end to this before it's sunfall. They go to Pilate and they say, break their legs. What the Romans used to do is take a giant iron mallet and not 
break the legs in a clean way, but literally smash the legs against the uh, cross and cripple the person instantly. When they go to Jesus, though, they find him already dead. Now, a soldier apparently wasn't sure if that was in fact the truth, because sometimes it's hard to tell when somebody's passed out versus when they're dead. So his easy way to determine if, in fact, Jesus is dead or not is to take his sword and pierce Jesus' side. Of course, the irony of that was if he wasn't dead, he would be soon, right? So it, it had the same effect of basically either testing whether he was dead or not or accomplishing the death, but either way, the soldier was going to get on with this. That was why he had been sent. And out of that wound, we hear, flows both blood and water, as Luke describes it. This is actually normal. In, in other words, I don't want you to get the impression this is supernatural. This is actual normal physiology at work here. When you would think about the position Jesus was in, hanging slightly above the ground, if the Roman was to take out a sword and pierce his side, it would naturally be an upward thrust in from the, the lower part of the, of the abdomen, probably up underneath the rib cage, and then toward the center, toward the heart. If that's in fact how the Roman soldier had done it, and had come near to hitting the heart, in the process of reaching the heart, it would have come through an outer area, a sac of fluid that surrounds the heart called the pericardium. That pericardium has a watery fluid in it. It would have been very natural for the wound to then expel both blood and water, water to the eye, but in fact it was just uh, bodily fluid that's clear. And that would have been a normal physiological reaction. There have been many attempts, commentators of different kinds have come along and looked at this, and there have been many attempts to attach symbolism of some kind to the fact that there was blood and water observed coming out of Jesus. If, in fact, there is symbolism intended by this moment, then I'm going to lean toward a connection with the Last Supper for my choice of symbolism here. And that is this. Jesus declared in that meal that his blood was the wine of that cup in the Last Supper, in the Passover meal. But, of course, that wine was mixed with water, that being the tradition for that cup in that meal. So it would only make sense that if, in fact, he is to say, my blood spilt is the remission of your sin and my blood is held in this cup, the cup of the new covenant, it seems sensible that that imagery would be reinforced by the way God would produce the flow of that blood in such a way that the water being present as well would evoke a memory of that cup, which is how he associated it. But again, that's only if you assume there is symbology in intended here. With that background, let's go now into Luke, beginning at verse 50 of chapter 23. A man named Joseph, who was member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action, a man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the woman who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Luke's description here of the burial process paints a really nice detailed picture. More detailed than in the other gospel writers. And in this verse we start with Jesus still on the cross. So he's died, he's been left there. Now, in the verses I just read, you saw it mentioned that this was the day of preparation. Now, what that means in the Jewish context is any day prior to a Sabbath day was the day of preparation. And the reason it had that title is fairly simple. If you could do no work on a Sabbath, you had to be prepared for that coming day 
so that you didn't have to do any work on that day. You had baked any bread you might need for that day. You had already taken care of any chores. You had drawn all the water you needed because you couldn't go down and draw more water. Anything that was work couldn't be done on that day. You had to do it all in advance. So the day of preparation every week was Friday, or in this case it was a Thursday because Friday was a special Sabbath. And you had to be sure all the work necessary to get you into the next day was done. That's why it's a day of preparation. It's also the reasoning behind why there's so much urgency to get Jesus into the grave because they did not want to see his body lay unburied for two full days, which would have been necessary if they hadn't been able to get him into the grave before sunfall. Joseph of Arimathea takes it upon himself to get this done. Now, we don't know too much about Joseph. Really, all we know about Joseph is really what's claimed here in these, in these verses and in the other Gospels. If you take all four Gospels together, and you take the contents of what we know about Arimathea, here's, or of Joseph of Arimathea, here's all that we find. First of all, he comes from a town called Arimathea. I thought that went up all by myself. It's about 21 miles northwest of present-day Jerusalem. It went by a different name in the times of Old Testament prophets, and in fact, it's the same town where Samuel the prophet was born and lived and died. So it has some notoriety to the Jew, but by this time it is called Arimathea. There is a legend about Joseph. I call it a legend because I can't imagine how you could demonstrate it as truth. But there's a legend about him that says that after the crucifixion, after the, new, the church started in Jerusalem, he eventually became a, an evangelist that traveled all the way to England and founded the very first Christian church outside of Judea in England where, uh, in a place called Glastonbury where he stayed and died and was, and was buried. Like I said, it's, it really sounds more like lore than anything else. There's, there's no physical or archaeological evidence that I know of to support it. He was, as we're told here, a member of the Jewish council, which means of the Sanhedrin, the very same group that had conducted that trial that resulted in Jesus being convicted. So he is a member of this council, but as we were just told in the text, he was also a secretive believer in Jesus. Secretive because of his fear of the Jews, obviously, and because of his position of authority. Luke says he did not agree with the council's decision. And he has continued to be a believer of Jesus, Mark tells us that when he went to Pilate, the phrase Mark uses as he describes Joseph's trip to Pilate is he had to gather up the courage to approach Pilate to request the body. That's how Mark puts it. Now, Joseph had good reason to fear what he was about to do. First of all, he's a member of a council that had just convicted Jesus of blasphemy and was equally prepared to go after his disciples if they could find them. Secondly, Jesus had been executed by the Romans as a criminal. So he has reason to fear not only the Jewish leadership, but now the Romans as well, which is the reason why the disciples, of course, have all disappeared. So he's about to go on the record. He's about to go public with his allegiance, his alliance with a man hated by both the Jews and, if not hated by the Romans, at least disliked. When he asked Pilate for the body, Pilate asked if it were possible that Jesus was already dead. You don't see that question come out in Luke, but it comes out in the other Gospels. And the reason he asked that question, of course, would be that it would not have been the case in most circumstances for a man put on a cross to die in the matter of six hours. That was an extremely rapid death for anyone put on the cross. We also know that Joseph is a man of wealth. Well, we know that first because Matthew calls him a rich man. Secondly, because he has this kind of tomb prepared. This man had a burial place already set aside for himself, hewn out of rock, we're told. And I, don't, I want to try to set the image in your mind a little bit. If you've got in your mind a picture of sort of a stone 
wall canyon of some kind and like a crevice just dug out of it or something like that, then you really don't have enough of, a, of an elaborate, you don't have a picture of how elaborate this thing would have been. In, in traditional terms, this probably would have had multiple chambers. Think more like what an Egyptian burial place would have been like. An, an antechamber followed by an inner chamber, benches hewn out of the side of the wall where you could sit, a table where they would lay the body and prepare it for burial. The way these were typically used was you would prepare the body, wrap it, leave it in there, roll the stone. A year later, you would come back and collect the bones and put them in an ossuary. And uh, then that crypt would be uh, put somewhere permanently buried or put in a, in a proper place somewhere. So it's quite elaborate. And it's all hewn out of rock, which means a tremendous amount of labor went into producing this place. And labor is money. So this could easily have exceeded an annual salary. It could have been something in the neighborhood of what you and I would spend on a small house. You know, we're talking here about a lot of money put into his burial place. No one does that unless they have a lot of money to spare. Consider what Joseph did here. First, he was used by God to fulfill Scripture. In Isaiah 53, 9, a prophecy of Jesus' death goes like this. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was assigned to the wicked, meaning had he, had he been left to the circumstances he was in, he would have been assigned to the same outcome as those thieves. But, but rather than accept that outcome, he found himself in the burial place of a rich man. Joseph's obedience and his courage in this moment meant he was used by God to fulfill Scripture. Secondly, he was obedient to Christ's own words from an earlier point in Christ's ministry when he spoke to the disciples as it's recorded in Matthew 10:25, he said, Jesus said this, It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What, what Jesus was asking of his disciples was two things in, that, in those verses, two principal things. First of all, what you have learned from me in a private way, you need to be prepared to take out to the world in a public way. And in doing so, you're going to make yourself vulnerable. You're going to put yourself in harm's way. That's the necessary quality of being bold in the faith, of countering a world that will hate you because they first hated me. So because of that inevitability, do not fear them. You see the connection? You cannot be bold in proclaiming what you were hearing in private. And for us today, that, that private revelation is akin to our study of the Word. A personal, intimate an encounter with the Word and with God's direction in our life through the Word leads us to a conviction of action. And yet, in that moment of conviction, we're also brought face to face with a fear over what the consequences of that action might bring. And Jesus is saying, get used to it. Be prepared for it. It's not an excuse for no action. You've been warned, but now your command is to go forth despite that fear, and in fact, or despite the threat, and without fear, knowing that the one you should truly fear is not the one in the earth who might try to take your body away from you, but the one in heaven who can take both body and soul away. That's the one you pay attention to. That's the one who should direct your actions. Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, is standing before exactly that dilemma. He knows who Jesus was. He was a follower. He was a secret believer, if you will. But what was once secret was not to remain such. 
He couldn't be a witness for the Christ unless he was willing to be public with his witness, with his belief. And though he had reason to fear, his fear didn't hold him back from his action. And because of his obedience, he became a fulfiller of Scripture. And what did he get out of it? Only to be immortalized for centuries later in God's Word as a faithful slave of his Master, which is the very greatest opportunity I would think you could have in service to your Lord, to be immortalized in that way. I also admire the generosity of this man, which I think is also worth noting as we pass him by here. The donation of this grave, as I said, would be the equivalent of like you taking like a, a let's, say, let's say a rental home, a, a smaller property that you have on the side that you know, if you sold it would make a fair amount of money, and used it to donate to a man who was already dead. I want you to consider that for a moment here, because we know how the story ends, but he didn't. You can't really say that in the moment he took this action, he fully understood or expected what was about to occur three days later. In fact, you could have argued at the moment that he did this that Jesus was dead, so there was really little reason to go to this much effort just to memorialize his body. After all, couldn't that money have been used for better purpose? His situation is actually very similar to the one you hear described earlier in the Gospels where the woman takes her alabaster vial of perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet, to which the disciples ignorantly reply, that could have been sold and the money used to help the poor. What a waste. And Jesus says, if you think this is a waste of our precious materials, then, then you don't understand who I am because of, what that, of, of who I am and what it means that you would sacrifice all on my behalf. Service to Christ is priceless. And as a result, anything he asks us to do, particularly in monetary terms, particularly in terms of our finances, has no limit, should have no limit. We should not put those barriers before him. And he received more than he could have ever hoped to receive for the investment he made in that, in that tomb to be immortalized in the gospel. We also know from other gospels that when Joseph came to claim the body, did you notice the women were still hanging around? So you're going to find this interesting little arc of, of behavior on their part. They follow Jesus to the cross. They guard his body on the cross. And then when Joseph shows up to claim the body, they follow him all the way to the tomb and watch the body placed in the tomb and watch the body sealed by the rolling of the stone. We're also told that Joseph is accompanied by Nicodemus, who's come along by this time to help with the process of preparing the body and burying it. The presence of the women here is so important because it essentially provides a chain of custody. Now, I don't know if you've thought of it that way before, but there is an element in, G in the Gospels at this point of striving to demonstrate the truth of Jesus' claims. So, by the fact that these women accompany Jesus from front to back, from the time before his death all the way to the point of his burial, we now have eyewitnesses that can attest to the fact that Jesus was placed in the very same or the very same person who was placed in that tomb was the one who died on the cross. And the very same one who died on the cross was the one who was led there in the beginning. That no one could come around later and claim that the stories of his resurrection were concocted by people who were trying to prop him up in the eyes of people as the Messiah that he wasn't. Rather, we have eyewitnesses who will tell you that the whole way through the process, they saw his body, they watched it go into the grave, they watched the stone, they know exactly what happened to his body. Now, add to that one more detail. Who was it who first saw the risen Lord's empty grave? None other than these very same women. Many commentators have asked the question, why were the women the first to see the open grave? Well, at least one reason, I would argue, is this very reason. 
that it was this chain of custody, this ability for a single set of witnesses, and not just one, but two, to make very clear what happened all the way through the process and to attest to the fact that there was nothing done to fool you or to, to create a fraud over this situation. One other thing we know from John's Gospel is that those same men who came to Pilate saying that they would like to see the uh, legs of, that, of, of the other prisoners broken, they also requested a guard. In fact, they requested two guards, as we find out later. The reason they did this, that we're told, is because they had heard Jesus say, kill me, and three days later I will be risen. And because they feared that somebody would try to fake the risen Lord, they said, we want to put Roman guards over the stone and seal the stone so as to prevent anyone from stealing the body over the Sabbath. What's ironic about that, of course, was the presence of those guards became greater assurance to us that what was really happening happened that there hadn't been somebody seal the body, that when it was found missing, we can be sure it was missing because of the resurrection. So their plan actually backfired for that purpose. Moving back into the text, let's begin chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The first day of the week here, as Luke describes it, it's Sunday. Just as we consider Sunday our first day, it was no different in their day. It's the first day after the crucifixion that the woman could actually travel to the tomb. So what they had done was they had stayed with Jesus up to the point of his burial to the very last minute on the day before a Sabbath, rushed home to get there before the Sabbath so as to observe it. Observed it Friday, observed it Saturday, and of course it went all the way until evening on Saturday and they weren't going to come out of their home at night. That would have been a dangerous thing for them to do. And then on the break of dawn, we're told, Sunday morning, their thoughts returned to Jesus and to going back to the tomb with spices and perfume. And their intent here, of course, was to go back and attend to the body, to anoint the body in the grave. It's interesting here as well that they're, they're reported in one of the other Gospels as wondering to themselves, I believe this is in the Gospel of Mark, they're wondering to themselves as they make this trip back to the tomb, who's going to help us move the stone? They didn't have a plan for that. They just left in obedience and in a desire to be there early without necessarily knowing how they were going to complete their plan. The first thing they notice then when they show up is the stone is rolled away. This stone, by the way, was huge. And I want to give you a sense of what it looked like. It would have been fashioned almost like a disc, like the wheel of a wagon, a solid stone of that shape. And there was a groove cut into the ground before the front of this tomb. And so the stone could roll in and around, you know, back and forth in that uh, single channel that, that was laid in front of the doorway, yet it was still very hard to move. Several grown men would have been required to actually physically move this and probably with some kind of lever, some kind of fulcrum to help push the stone into place. Certainly two women would never have had the strength to move this stone on their own. When they arrive and they find it moved, of course the natural thing for them to do at this point is they go in. And when they enter, we're told that they cannot find the body of Jesus. Now, the chain of custody here is actually complete when you look at the other Gospels. Because in the other Gospels, you find that at the moment the stone was moved, we're told that it was moved by Matthew, according to Matthew, by angels. 
by an angel. When the angel moves the stone, the appearance of the angel and the movement of the stone scares the, the uh, two guards away. So the guards have been there till the moment the stone is rolled away, an angel doing the moving, and almost immediately thereafter, the women show up. So the women are there just in moments, in terms of time, moments after the moving, removing of this stone. It's not very long at all. They find Jesus missing, and they're told, we're told they're perplexed at the loss. Here for the first time, by the way, Luke uses the term Lord Jesus. This is the first time he's used it, though he will then begin to use it repeatedly in the book of Acts. So there's a conscious decision on his part here to vary the terminology. In fact, this became the preferred term in the early church for describing Jesus. We talk about him as Christ. We talk about him as Jesus. We talk about him as Lord. In their day, it was Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. That was the term used in the early church. The resurrection of Jesus was a specific event. Now, we're going to study it in stages here as we go through this chapter, but I want to begin with the most important piece of what it means that he was resurrected. He was resurrected in body and in spirit. And this begins a little discussion we need to have about the nature of your physical being and your spiritual being, the connection between the two, and what the word resurrection actually means. I have run into people from time to time who have turned that word in their own understanding into a word that to them means like a ghost. This idea that when I'm resurrected, somehow my spirit... They imagine the scenes, I guess, from the movies where you have a a body that dies, maybe from a cartoon of like the way that uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons used to go. You know, Tom would get killed by an anvil falling on his head and then a version of him would ghostly rise up with wings and, you know, it was his first life and then he'd have eight more, Right? But it's this thought that resurrection is only about this spiritual quality leaving the dead body and being brought to heaven, and that's what we mean by resurrection. That is not the meaning of the word resurrection. Resurrection means specifically the bringing back to life of a physical body. A physical body. It has nothing to say about the spirit, because your spirit never dies. There's no such thing as the death of the spirit. The spirit of an individual is eternal, regardless of whether they believe in Jesus or not. The only difference is what happens to that spirit in eternity. But the spirit never dies. The spirit never loses consciousness. There's nothing in the scriptures to to support uh, some of the false teaching that's out there that suggests your spirit sleeps for periods of time. There's nothing to suggest there's annihilism, which is the ceasing of the spirit to exist. Those are not concepts in scripture whatsoever. Those spirits God has created, He has created with an eternal destiny. The body, on the other hand, especially the one you and I have now, is not eternal. And so there is a resurrection required if that spirit is ever to be reunited with another body, with another container. There needs to be the bringing back to life of a body of some form. That's what resurrection means. Let's think about it from Jesus' perspective for just a minute. Jesus was all man and all God. The Scripture is clear on that at multiple places. But his body was a sinless body. And he was one in spirit with his father. So he had a perfect body and he had an uncorrupted, perfect spirit in the way he was created. So when his body died, it was an unnatural event. Think about that. Our body dies because God has ordained the death of this body as a consequence of its sin. But Jesus' body had no sin. So his body would have lived forever. 
In fact, his body had no reason to ever die. There would have been no instrument for its death. It was not going to decay. It was not going to wear out. It was not going to age and eventually fall apart. Those are all consequences of a curse applied to the body of, of yours and mine, your body and my body, as a consequence of sin. First, when his body died, it didn't decay. Even after the death of the body, it did not decay. Psalms 16.10. This is prophetic David speaking, but it's in the words of Christ. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. According to Psalms 16.10. There's another psalm that also says the same thing. For the sake of time, I'm using just the one. From this passage, what we end up with is a confirmation that his body never experienced any decay, which means even for the days it sat in the tomb, it did not decay. It did not begin to fall apart as a body would, even over that short period of time. Why? Because the deterioration process itself is something God ordained as a result of man's sin. You find that in Genesis 3.19. When he pronounces the curse on creation... Brought about by the sin of men, God says this, He says to Adam, but to all humans who follow from Adam as well, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That was a curse on the creation. What it said was this, it said that because you have sinned, Adam, you now have a body that's corrupted by your sin nature. If I were to leave your body as it was originally created, you would live eternally in a body that was sinful, which means for eternity you are separated from me. As a means of grace to mankind, God said, I have a repair project I have to undergo. First problem is I've got to repair the spirit in you that has died as a result of your sin. When he ate of that fruit, he died instantly. And yet his physical body still lived. The death he experienced as a result of sin was the spiritual death, the spirit in him becoming corrupt as a function of sin. Now he was spiritually unable to be in God's presence because his spirit now was a sinful, disobedient spirit. Because his spirit was sinful and corrupt, it had the effect of corrupting his flesh until his flesh now was a corrupted, sinful container. But God had created the flesh without the prospect of death. Adam had no reason to ever expect death. Death, we're told out of Romans chapter 5, comes as a result of sin. Through one man, sin entered the world, and from that one man, all men have now gained sin from that first man. So here's God's problem. I've got a man who's sinful. He can never be in my presence again. The only way to correct that is I've got to fix both the body and the spirit. He's got to get a new spirit, and he's got to have a new, uncorrupted unsinful body because until both of them are fixed he can't be in my presence and before I can give him those things there has to be a penalty paid for the sin so I've got a problem if I'm God I've got a problem here where I either condemn the man for his sin and he's never in my presence or I bring him into my presence but to do that I have to pay a penalty for the sin who's going to do that for him well Jesus of course did that on the cross as Jesus died on the cross therefore what happened specifically was at the point where he commanded his spirit into the Father, in Luke 23, 46, he committed his spirit to the Father, a very significant thing happened. To really understand it, you have to go back a little ways into the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, 17. Listen to what Jesus says in predicting his death, John 10, 17. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority 
to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. When Jesus spoke His dying words, therefore, on the cross, when He says, into your hands I commit my spirit, He was, in a sense, dictating the timing and the manner of His death. Yes, He was hanging on a cross, but it was at that moment that He essentially ended the physical life He had on this earth. Because think about what He did. He removed the spirit from the body by committing His spirit into the hands of the Father. And it was at that moment that His body died on the cross. What is death? What is the saying you may have heard in Sunday school or from your pastors in other places? What is the actual moment of death? It's when the Spirit leaves the body. And in the leaving of the Spirit, His body died. But His body was not corrupted by sin, so it was not under the curse that God placed on the creation. And so His body would not decay. You and I have to separate this moment from our understanding of the world we've grown up in. We've grown up in a world where as soon as something dies, it decays. In fact, even if it doesn't die, it's decaying on the way. That's the only kind of world we know. It's the only kind of body we've ever experienced. And yet it is Scripture that tells us that, na- that experience and that body are directly the result of the way God uh, implemented it in Genesis as a function of sin. And that's grace to you and I. Because the alternative is to live in eternity as separated from God because we would always have this container that is sinful. So Jesus starts the process by removing His Spirit from His body, commanding it into the, in, committing it to the Father, and in doing so, His body now is lifeless, though not decaying. So that begs the question, what happened to His Spirit? At this point, at the point of His death on the cross, His Spirit went to the place where all departing spirits go, up until that point, which we now know from studying Luke chapter 16 was... Abraham's bosom, better known as Sheol. At the moment of his death, his spirit left his body and it went to the place where the spirits of all those who had died in the Old Testament went, to Sheol. Remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man. One is found on the good side, Abraham's bosom. The other is found in Hades, which is the other side of Sheol, the holding place for those who do not believe. Jesus, we know, would have gone to the side that is called Abraham's bosom, to the side where Lazarus was. The spirits of those who died prior to the resurrection of Jesus could not enter into God's presence until Jesus himself had died and been resurrected because we know from Scripture Jesus was to be the first fruits of the resurrection. So, here's problem number two for God. I'm in the process of saving men and women in the Old Testament, no different than today, on the basis of faith, but I cannot bring them into my presence. They've died... They are to be preserved and they are to be in my presence eternally, but I can't bring them into my presence yet because I haven't atoned for their sins yet. There has not been the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat in the temple in heaven to atone for their sin and the sins of the rest of the world. So until I can atone for their sin in the way that I have planned to do it, I must keep them at bay. I must keep them out of my presence because to bring them into my presence with sin and yet without payment for sin means I have to judge them for their sin. My nature and my character would demand justice for sin. So again, as a form of mercy to the Old Testament saints, he reserves a place of holding that is a comforting place only until the day when that atonement has happened. And upon the atonement of sin, they can now be welcomed into his presence. How can we be so sure this is what happened? Well, let me take you through some scripture. First, beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul teaches about this very moment when he says this, Therefore, when Scripture says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. 
Paul now explains this Old Testament verse by saying this in Ephesians 4, verse 9. He says, Now, this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above the heavens so that He might fill all things. Fulfill, in other words, all things. The point Paul's making here is when Scripture says he ascended, it's not strictly speaking about the fact that he left the earth. It's speaking about ascended from the depths to the heights. And he says that was the moment he went down into the depths to retrieve those captive waiting for him, waiting for this moment for their resurrection. Isaiah 44.23 gives us even more background on this. Isaiah 44.23 says this, Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel He shows forth His glory. It's a fleeting reference, but it's a suggestion here again about the fact that there is joy to be found in the lower parts of the earth. Well, let me tell you, it makes no sense if all He's referring to is those held captive in hell, because it could hardly be considered joy for those in hell that the Lord has risen, because that only means judgment is around the corner. No, it's a reference to those who have been held until a day of joy upon His resurrection, upon the fact that the Lord has done it, meaning He has redeemed His people. Then there can be joy for those who have been waiting for that moment. One final set of verses to confirm this is in 1 Peter chapter 3. You may know these verses as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now Peter talks about the other side of that place that he visited, the place that he refers to as the prison. This is the side of Sheol that still exists today, holding the the souls of those who depart the earth as unbelievers. That place has never been emptied. It stays the way it is even to this day. Christ, when He descended, set free the captives, those who were in the the comforting side of Sheol, the place called Abraham's bosom, because they weren't to remain there any longer than necessary. But He also, we're told, proclaimed the Gospel, preached to the side that was opposite. I believe this gives a sense of confirmation that when we look at Lazarus and the rich man and we hear about the ability for both sides to communicate, the rich man turns to Abraham and says, send Lazarus back to my brothers so they won't come down here with me. You know, we wonder, is that literally the way it works or was that just contrived? We still can't be sure, but what 1 Peter seems to suggest is it was possible for Jesus to at least cross over or at least audibly reach the other side and communicate the gospel. Now that begs the question, what was he there for? Some have misinterpreted this to say he was there to give them another chance. But other scripture would tell us definitively that is not so, that it is appointed for men to live once and to die and then to be facing judgment. There is no second chance after our death. Rather, it was for the sake of judgment. In other words, sometimes I preach the gospel to the effect of saving men, and sometimes I preach the gospel to the effect of condemning men. Whether it will save or whether it will condemn is not in my control, nor is it on my mind. It is always up to God, but the fact remains that our proclamation of the gospel is not exclusively for the purpose of salvation. The two witnesses in the time of tribulation, as described in the book of Revelation, they witnessed for a long time during a very terrible period in human history, but apparently to no good effect, except 
to be witnesses against the world to their judgment. Witnessing isn't always about saving. It is sometimes about condemning. But that is always in God's control, and we don't change our behavior as a result. We seek all men and hope that some may turn. So Jesus at this point, having died his death on the cross, has left his physical body. His body is without a spirit, but without decay. And he has descended to the lowest parts of the earth, and he is accomplishing the work God has for him there. That body sitting in the tomb spends three days away from its spirit, at which point we're told he's resurrected. That's the scene we now came upon here in Luke 24. The resurrection of the body, therefore, is the moment at which the spirit is resident again in a physical container. Now, as we've said already, Jesus' physical container was not corrupted by sin. And therefore, that body is still suitable for Jesus to inhabit. He, therefore, could resurrect into the exactly the same body he had on the cross. Now, how is it we would know he resurrected into exactly the same body? The easiest proof we have, of course, is the experiences the disciples have when they first see him, specifically a man named Doubting Thomas. Remember Thomas? He's not recorded in Luke's Gospel, but we'll see in a, you can see in John's Gospel that Thomas doubts the original stories he hears from the apostles of Jesus' resurrection. So when Jesus finally appears to Thomas... Thomas's reaction is to put his hands in the wounds of Jesus' body and in doing so prove to himself that Jesus is in fact resurrected. That demonstrates that the body Jesus was resurrected into was the very same one he hung on the cross in, the one with the wounds in it, and yet without decay, just the way it was as he left the cross. That was the body he resurrected into. Now, one of the things that pops into my mind, perhaps yours as well, is that body was in pretty rough shape, wasn't it? Which leaves open the possibility that, at least for the time he walked the earth with it, God had done some measure of healing so that it wasn't grotesque. We also know from looking at books like Revelation, where Jesus appears in his glorified form, that the physical body he was resurrected into will continue to have a new appearance when he is in his glory. It is not going to look like the Jesus on the cross. It's going to look like the king of the world with you know, hair as white as wool and glowing all around him. There's a different appearance available for him at some point. But that's not to say it's not the same body. All right? Think of Moses as he left the mountain, having seen God. He came down and his face was radiant to the people of Israel. It's still his body, but it had yet gained glory and, and a different appearance. So it's still the case that Jesus could experience different appearance with the same body. That's within God's power to do so. But it is the same body. Now, what will you and I see upon our resurrection? Will we come back into exactly the same physical container that we occupy now? No, and we know as well from Scripture, as Paul teaches it in his letter to the Corinthians, that we will have a different body by necessity. First, the one we're in now is under a curse. A curse that says, from dust you came and to dust you're going to go. And yet we still need a body to hold that spirit because God expects us to return to the earth with Jesus and reign here for a thousand years. And we're not ghosts floating around in the ether. We're in a physical body again, living a real tangible life on this earth. Just in a new body that is not corrupted by sin and therefore will not die again and has no fear of death, holding the same spirit that you and I now have. One question I haven't addressed, though, is what happened to the corrupted spirit we were born with? Remember I said that Adam, at the point of his sin, died spiritually because his spirit now is corrupted. He eventually died physically because of the curse that God placed on the creation. Once we're resurrected, we have our new body, but when did the new spirit come? 
When does Scripture tell us that we receive a new spirit? Upon our belief. That's what it means to be born again. The term born again literally means that's the moment, based on our faith in Christ, that our spirit has just been replaced with a new one. Now, you and I may not have felt the moment. It's quite often the case that that moment doesn't have a tangible, external aspect. We don't necessarily have something we can feel happening because it is, in fact, spirit and not flesh. But make no mistake, it has happened. And the proof of it comes in the fruit that is evidenced of that changed spirit. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8, that the very fact that we have this inner war now, where on days that I make mistakes and I sin, I recognize it and I'm, I'm upset that I did it, but yet at the same time I ask myself, why did I do it? He says that inner war, that war with your members, the parts of your body, is your proof that you have a new spirit. Because a sinner doesn't think like that. There's no war when your spirit and your flesh are both corrupt. They're in union. They're in a sync. They're in agreement. But once you've been born again, you've received a new spirit that no longer wants to sin. It wants to do the right thing according to the leading of the Holy Spirit in you. And yet it's hamstrung, it's hampered by a flesh that's still drawn by its sin. So you're at war with yourself until that new body comes along. And for the rest of your life, your struggle to obey God's Word and the leading of the Holy Spirit is a function of crucifying the flesh and listening to the Spirit because they are in opposition. That's the proof you need to know you have been born again. That you recognize your sin, you recognize the perfection of God's demands on your life, and you have a struggle in your attempt to obey. But what's interesting to me is Scripture never gives you the allowance of an excuse. The devil didn't make you do it. You can't turn to God and say, well, you know I have this corrupt body. What am I going to do? Hey, it's the way I am. Scripture doesn't give us that. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that it is our, our spiritual service to God is to take on in our body a life that honors Him by obedience. It is the expectation and the call. And the means by which you do that, in other words, if you want the antidote, if you want the tool that lets you win that battle, it's called the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. Devote yourself to study the Word, we're told in the Bible, and that crucifying of the flesh will take place. The Spirit will grow, and in strength it will obey, and the flesh will be diminished. And to the extent we set aside the Word of God, the flesh will reemerge, and its influence in our life will reappear. One of the reasons you can be so sure that your salvation can never be taken from you, or as some might say, given back, you know, that you can somehow be unsaved. But one of the best proofs I offer of that is if you understand what happened when you were saved, then you'd understand why you can't undo it. It's like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That butterfly can no more become a caterpillar, I don't care how much it wants to, then you can go back to being your old nature. That old spirit's been changed by God and you don't have the capacity to undo it. You are a new creature in Christ by His work in your spirit and you're on a one-way trip. Enjoy the ride. Paul says in Romans 8.10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8 goes on to say this in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. Then it goes on to say why. Why did God subject the creation to futility? Meaning, to, a, to, to an inevitable destruction. He says it next this way. He says, 
in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So God set the creation into a place of futility in the hope that one day to come it would be set free from its slavery, a slavery that was brought about by the sin of man on earth. Going forward, he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul says that even us, sitting here now, we kind of groan, we kind of wait expectantly for a day when we get rid of this corrupt shell and receive the promise of a resurrected body, of a new body that won't have that sin, that, that sin in it. Well, we spend a lot of time in that, which is healthy, I hope, but I want to get back into the text before we end tonight. So back to the scene in Luke. Luke reports that these women see two men sitting in the tomb in place of Jesus. We know these men to be angels. Scriptures tell us that. But there's no indication the women knew this. Remember, the word angel just means messenger. God's used the angels in this way from time, from the, from the beginning. And, and in fact, in this case of Jesus' life, he used angels to herald the fact that Jesus arrived. Now he's using angels to herald his resurrection. And they open their conversation with these women by asking, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Which is really a polite rebuke. It's not just a, a little flippant, sarcastic statement. He's rebuking them for not having more understanding of the situation. Or, you know, why return to the grave if you know he's going to resurrect? It's a sign that they never caught on to exactly what he was going to do. And then they remind him of Jesus' predictions, and then they give insight to see the big picture. Remember we studied earlier in Luke, going back a ways now, that the reason that the meaning of Jesus' earlier predictions were hidden to the men who heard them originally, it was so that at this time, at this appointed time, when the revelation of the meaning was finally available and given, it would have added impact. They'd be able to look back and say, wait a minute, he told us he was going to die. Now we see he was right. And in that prediction, he proved his divinity. That if there was any doubt about the course of his plan, now we can see that he even said himself he had to die. Now that that meaning is made clear, the impact comes home to rest with us. We see it was, in fact, a sign of his divinity that he could foretell his death in this way. In Matthew's Gospel, these angels tell the woman that Jesus has gone ahead to the Galilee and would meet them there. I love that detail. Every time I read that, the detail never ceases to fascinate me. Jesus has just been resurrected. Now, what would you do if you're him? He's not a ghost. He's in a physical body. He gets up, stands up. Angels move the stone out of the way. Thank you, angel. Walks out the door. Starts walking to the Galilee. Where else is he going to go? Galilee's his home. He starts an 80-mile-plus walk back to the Galilee and gets on the road, and eventually we'll talk here next week about some of the events on that road. And he's already told them, we are told here, that that's where they could meet him. Now, that's not recorded in the Gospel, but it's apparent from what the angel says that there had been a point somewhere along the way where Jesus had said, after I'm resurrected, I'll meet you in the Galilee, which, of course, they didn't understand in the moment. So he's now walking 80 miles back to the Galilee. With this great news of his resurrection, the women run back to the other 11, we're told, and to others who were still hiding in Jerusalem. Verse, 20, uh, verse 10 of chapter 24 says this, Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. 
We'll sum this up pretty quickly because this scene is obvious, obviously not too complicated. The women run back. They do exactly what you and I would do. They tell anyone they knew who had any association with Jesus, he's actually not dead after all. He's come back to life. All right, now put yourself in the place of the eleven. You're hiding because of fear of death. You, you've spent two days in a Sabbath, which means for two days you've had the cover of a Sabbath where no one would come looking for you. Today's really the first day you feel some threat. You didn't leave the house because you're too afraid. But a bunch of women did. And the women come back and they say, guess what? He's not dead after all. Now, they don't say it in those words, but they basically tell you he's still alive. He's come back to life. Do you ha- are you in the mood for this? My guess is they don't have much patience for this. My guess is it's not just a matter of, well, now, what did you see again? Let me think about this. Okay, I don't believe you. No, it was more like absurd women being women. Now, that sounds very chauvinistic, and I, I realize that, but I'm speaking from the standpoint of how they would have seen women in that day. Women were not, were not allowed to testify at trial, you may know, in part because women were considered you know, too emotional, too, too, too unreliable in their, in their conversation and in their ability to attest to things. So they weren't taken seriously. And in light of what they said, I mean, really, this is the, absurd, this is the height of absurdity to them. So all this does is confirm for them you can't trust a thing a woman says. This is nonsense. That's what the phrase nonsense here means. No sense. It doesn't sound sensible to them. So they don't give it any regard. What's more, so I want you to see here that Peter's reaction here is amazing. You know, we give Peter a hard time at points along the way, and for good reason, but we need to give him credit where credit is due. Here's a man who had every reason to remain hiding, and he makes a very bold effort on his part to go examine the truth of these women's claims. He runs to the tomb, associating himself with Jesus and putting himself in danger by virtue of bringing himself to light, coming out from hiding. So I think... What Peter gets here is at least a little credit for his willingness to take this step. Why is the resurrection, to end tonight, I want to ask this question, why is the resurrection so important to our faith? In other words, why does this whole scene become so central to our doctrine? First and foremost, it establishes the truth of everything else that came before it. Jesus made astounding claims all the way through his time on earth about the nature of the God that he was sent from, the Father that sent him. He made a lot of claims about God's character, about His plan, and about His expectations for you and I. He claimed to speak on behalf of the one and only God that created the world, and therefore His words were our understanding, our best understanding for the God that created us, what that God's expectations were for us. That was what Jesus claimed. And of course, He went a step further and claimed He Himself to be God. Those are astounding claims. And those claims, by the way, were mutually exclusive of anyone else's claims. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is, I am the door. No one comes to the Father but through me. There was a very simple exclusivity to his claim. So it wasn't just that he said, I have some answers for you. He said, I'm the only one who has answers for you. Jesus declared that belief in him, therefore, was the one and only way to get to the Father. He made himself a dividing line. And he promised that just as he would be resurrected, he offered to those who believed in him the very same opportunity. So now talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. It's easy to make those kinds of claims. It's easy to say crazy things like that. Countless other faiths, by the way, have come along and made very similar claims. Claims about these very same issues. Claims to speak on behalf of the one and only God or multiple gods or whatever their case may be. And in every case, those claims come down to the credibility of the one who makes them. The credibility of the one who makes them 
is all important to whether or not you believe what that person said. And the ones who have come before and after Jesus making claims like Him have all gone to their grave and with no eyewitness to support anything other than the fact that they went and stayed in the grave. Buddha is still in the grave. Muhammad is still in the grave. Confucius, still in the grave. And rotted all the way. Every other place you would turn in the world of, of, of similar claims, the one who has made that claim had no credibility when he finally died and showed no power to bring himself back from that end. What they proved, essentially, was there is yet a higher power than them holding them in that grave. And then Jesus comes along and is resurrected with eyewitnesses there at the beginning, there at the end, and all the way along to confirm the fact that his claim was validated. He was, in fact, the same body in the grave as out. And in conquering death, he proved something that should gain our attention. And that is this. If you're looking for where to put your trust for those who would claim to speak on the nature of spiritual matters, on life and death and what happens after death, the one whose claims you should believe is the one who has shown their power extends beyond the grave. Because if he cannot raise himself, what power do you expect him to have to raise you? To have any influence whatsoever over your eternal destiny. And in reverse, of course, those who can raise themselves in this way clearly have the power to do the same for somebody else. It's in the resurrection that the proof of our faith is established once and for all. I'll end with a passage in Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death. So, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For, if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over Him. The one who is no longer mastered by death can likewise extend to us the promise that we will not be mastered by death either. By the same power that raised Him, we will be raised by faith. That's where we end tonight. I appreciate your extra patience. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, by the promise of Your Word, we rest in the knowledge of our coming resurrection and our eternal life and glory with You. Amen, Father, for that promise and for the power, Father, to carry it out. Thank You, Lord, for the Gospel in all its richness. And tonight, Father, for the reminder of the, the sincere and uh, earnest promise You've offered through Your Son for resurrection to those who believe. Father, resurrection to eternal life. How we look forward to that moment, Father. How we uh, look forward to a moment when our bodies will no longer be that container of sin that will hold us back from a life of obedience, Father, but rather a new body will come alongside the Spirit You've already given and with that new body, Father, we will live in glory with You always to obey. We look forward to that day. We pray it would come soon for us and for the world. And Lord, as we come back one more week, I pray and finish this study according to Your will. I pray, Father, that uh, our attention would be riveted to the events of the Gospel like no other day to know, Father, the resurrection's truth and its power and to go out from this study with a renewed commitment to obey by the power of Your Spirit in us. Thank You, Lord, for the night. I pray for Danny that as her health is has troubled her tonight, Lord, you would be with her and comfort her and bring her back to full health and bring her next week if it be your will.
for all these things we lift them up in your name. Amen.